Hello and welcome to another edition of Saturday Night's Alright for Podcasting with me, George Matlock, here on Radio Elton John. Hope you've had a great month and we're back as we are on the last Saturday in every month. You know, we like to keep a bit of discipline, a bit of routine going here, you know. So the guest this week uh, is uh, a name that you I'm almost certain have heard of, but you might say... Now, where was he? What? How do I know him about? Where does he connect with Elton? Well, we're going to find out in the show because there's a beautiful tapestry here that we're going to try and thread together. All I will mention is that uh, Roger Pope, Ian Duck, Blue Solid, a few other names loom large in this story. And he's got a fantastic nickname. But we'll find out more about that much later on in the show. So let's, without any further ado, introduce you to our very special guest for today. His name is Phil Greenfield. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Hi, Phil. Fantastic. It's great to have you on board. What an atmosphere we get in there from the, the sound studio. Um, right, Phil, Phil Greenfield, okay. welcome to Radio Elton John. How are you, sir? Uh, thanks for the invite. Very well, George. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> looking forward to doing this. It was a, it was a, a bit of a surprise, but um, obviously through a mutual friend of ours, that's mm-hmm. how it sort of came about. So, uh, yeah, no, if I can shed any light for people on anything that, I can remember if I can. It's just putting all the bits together at this stage of my... Uh... <laughs> of your youth, of your youth. Yeah, what is it? They say I know all the notes, but I can't remember what order they go in. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. Well, we'll let the orchestra play. Now, you um, are a very much part of the Elton John story, um, but it's, uh, it's through basically other members of Elton's band over the years, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, my, my sort of introduction, as it were... At that point, it was in about 1968, 69, mm-hmm. um, and a close friend of mine at the time, uh, we were both heavily into motorcycles and, and that type of lifestyle. Um, and unbeknown to me, he was a, a, a musician from the past. Um, he played in a band, like, a band called The Classics he was the leader of mm-hmm. in the early 60s, and they were probably one of the first sort of uh, bands that would actually, you've got them now, where they all go out and pretend to be whatever band. Um, the name escapes me for what, what, they, what they are, but they, it, they used to actually Im- uh, mimic, if you like, and emulate the shadows. Because oh. um, uh, Ian was very tall, thin, wore sort of dark rim glasses, and um, obviously... They they played all their sort of all that type of material, but primarily though he was a a blues blues based uh, musician. Right, tall and bespectacled. It's got to be <clears throat> something like Hank Marvin, hasn't it? Exactly. That's exactly the the, the, the sort of role yeah. that he took on. Yeah, and and we are talking about is this Ian Duck? Yeah, it is. Fantastic. Yeah. 
Ian Edward Lindsay Duck. <laughs> that's a long, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's, it's actually used in the introduction to one of the songs off of one of the albums where they do an acoustic ah. n- number. Um, and uh, you've got to you've got to forgive me when I forget I forget names of titles and everything because it's such a long time ago, obviously. Um, but it was um, it was a, a, a um, it was basically a, a, and it was built around um, Sonny Boy Williamson. Mm. He was the, uh, the, if you like, the, the, the point of the song, as it were. And um, it, when they introduced them, set themselves into the, into the song, uh, acoustically, it, uh, that's what Ian sort of says, this is Ian Edward Lindsay Duck. <laughs> yeah, beware of imitations. Right, brilliant. Um, now you, so you got involved in uh, basically working with with Hookfoot, but let's let's start at the beginning. So you, it, there was a connection with Bluesology here, isn't there? Uh, yes. Yeah, so when um, I did eventually sort of get introduced by Ian after um, we were off to meet up with the rest of the band, that that they were new to Ian as well, except for the fact that he and Roger uh, knew each other through the early days of the bluesology and um and roger used to play in sort of other bands around southampton mm. which is the area that we live and uh that's how it came about um through that that and later on obviously in the proceedings was when uh fred gandy who was in the bass player for bluesology mm, right. um he he took over uh in hookfoot from dave glover who was the original um bass player Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so he he was he replaced um, Dave in about it was after the first American tour we did I think yeah and um, and that was how and then obviously got to the whole sort of thing all comes starts sort of coming into play all the all the information and finding out about who's been doing what and where I mean the original there was a story that I believe is true. Uh, that Fred told me that he actually got in, um, interviewed to be the bass player for Hendrix. No way. Uh, over Jimmy Noel Redding. Yeah. And the, how that was, but Fred was a friend of Mitch Mitchell. Right. And um, it, I don't, for whatever reason, but I, I think because Fred was playing in bluesology at the time, and he, he he sort of must have I don't know because obviously no one no one knew who Hendrix was at the time, um, and uh, I guess that's as far as I know he sort of declined and carried on playing with <laughs> bluesology. <laughs> <laughs> you know we can all, we don't always necessarily know which door to go through, do we? When they come up in front of us. Yeah, no. Well, well, that's an, it's an amazing story all the same, and it's probably yeah. one that has haunted him in all the mature uh, years since. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. If, if Freddie's listening to this show, um, I, I, I just want to be really good about this. Um, yeah. I, I, I know, I know you're you're going to be turning a, a very, very young, tender age of twenty um, <laughs> next month, uh, and that's all I'm saying. So if you're listening, Freddie, happy B day to you when it comes. I mean, B day as in birthday, by the way, not the stuff that you find in the bathroom. Uh, and, um, okay, all right, we better get back onto the onto the onto the wagon here. I think. Uh, okay. Um, so. Uh, so yeah, um, and obviously once the first show that we ever did or that I ever was involved with was uh, it was on the back of a 
um, a farmyard trailer in a field up near Andover, um, where um, the manager of the band, Stan Phillips at the time, lived. And uh, we they actually did a what would have been an open air festival. Um, but it was a pretty haphazard sort of it was uh, very rudimentary, but um, but that was my my initiation or my uh, induction into uh, the music industry because prior to to taking Ian up to this this gig, um, I I had very little sort of musical sort of knowledge or background up until then, based on the fact that it was what sixty eight sixty nine yeah so. Uh, I think I went and saw little Stevie Wonder ah, uh, yes. on a on a Tamala Motown uh, steam packet in Southampton, Gaumont in yeah. 1966. Fantastic. I think it was. Uh, that was awesome. uh, <laughs> well, and that festival, of course, in the late 60s, so that was actually before Glastonbury because that didn't take off oh, until 1970, didn't it? 71, yeah, 71. Yeah. And, and we, we never played Glastonbury at the time because it was too sort of um, – it was very low-key and it was mainly mm. – I think mainly sort of acoustic type of um, musicians or bands that played there, and they were more sort of uh, more into that type of hippie, if you like, yeah, yeah. type type of thing. Whereas Hookfoot was more obviously rock fusion, jazz fusion. They were very, uh, and because of the fact that they were very, very busy people too, especially Roger and Caleb. Um, half of my life was taken up by ferrying them round to different studios, uh, EMI and Olympic and all the rest of them, for, to do session work. Mm, uh, mm. And they, they played on, Milton, uh, I don't know how many albums they must have played on over the time. Right, right. Well, I, what's nice is you mentioned earlier about Roger Pope, and obviously a lot of people know that he was Elton's first uh, drummer as, as, a solo, as Elton as a solo artist. He was also in Hookfoot. But as you say, he also played in lots and lots of local bands, uh, in the uh, sort of Hampshire area, which is uh, perhaps a point that uh, a lot of people don't actually know. Fantastic. Yeah. Right, we're going to play I a little think... bit of Hookfoot just to uh, break up the chatter a little bit. So stay right there. See if you remember this one, Phil. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, there, you've got a bit of Hookfoot to go with. Uh, that's a song that uh, absolutely is the, con- the contradiction, really, of what we have here. The song is called If I Had Words. Well, here's somebody who's got plenty of them and is sharing them with us tonight. It's Phil Greenfield, our special guest on Radio Elton John. Phil, uh, does that song bring back lots of memories for you? It does, actually. Uh, just that whole, especially, I mean, for me, uh, Dave Glover, the bass player, mm. on that, his bass lines on that particular song, especially, just epitomise is what what he was. He was a fantastic, very, as I used to say, very sort of Tamala Motown in his mm. in his um, in his uh, structure, the way he used to play. He was very different from a lot of a lot of other bass players around at the time. Right. Yeah. It's very. It's got a real hook. Well, pardon the pun, but it's it really has got a real hook. This uh, this rhythm. And I mean, what yes. was what was the reason for? Because you mentioned earlier that he was replaced in the band. What what was the reason for that? Um, unfortunately, it was sort of alcohol related. Right, right, okay. <laughs> uh, Dave used to, I mean, as we all do, as you do when you're on the road and everything else, but it, it sort of got the better of him. And uh, after, after a while, it became very difficult for him to function at the right time, you know, especially on stage and things like that. And so uh, 
Caleb especially had to make the decision that it wasn't working, you know. So, right. Unfortunately, that was the that was the way it went. But uh, but a lovely lovely guy, fantastic guy, very very peaceful, and he said very spoke few words really. But he was a fantastic bass player. A man of action, you mean? Yeah. It, it was. Yeah. Man of it action. Was, yeah. yeah. Well, it's uh, the great thing about when you record is um, no one can take that away. You know, it's a meritocracy, isn't it? Once you've recorded it and it's gone down on vinyl and an acetate, whatever, um, that, that it stays. And people will always remember that and say what, how uh, wonderful that recording was. That's great for track. sure. Fabulous yeah, we did. We did a, the, the, we did a, actually did Reading Festival in the early 70s. It was one of the early um, Reading festivals. And we actually, they were... Um, they were supporting. We'd met Fred, we'd met up with Al Cooper. Oh yeah, in America, and Caleb and he got on very well. One thing or another, so it created this sort of bond between them. And um, he was coming over to play Reading, and asked whether we or the band would um, uh, do his, you know, be the backing band for him, um, which we did. And um, it was um, that was. Uh, and unbelievable they had they but obviously the way things were we obviously were trying to push ourselves and said we'll only do it if we have a, a slot for a hook for it as well um and uh we eventually got them to give us one song <laughs> one song's <laughs> worth of uh of time on stage uh but uh so but that one no unbeknown to them one of the songs that hookfoot did was uh shoeshine boy which was 13 and a half minutes long and they were going, oh, but the, oh, I mean, obviously, the guys on the side of the stage, all the organizers were going, get them off, get them off, get them off. <laughs> and obviously, couldn't because they were still playing, they were in the middle of the, of the song. Um, and uh, but the, there was a little anecdote to that that came out that um, when uh, when they came on and uh, they did the uh, the set uh, with Al. Um, uh, at the end of it all, and obviously remembering this was then, it was, I mean, festivals were so hazard mm. and not that well run. Mm. Um, and uh, packing packing the van up, packing all the gear up, because we then had to go to the Roundhouse to do a show that, that evening, uh, later on that day. This was like a late afternoon type of show time at, at yeah. Reading. Yeah. And so, yeah, we were, I was packing the van up and obviously counting all the bits in like I did, you know, you know, it backwards and forwards and realised that the flying V of ours was missing. <laughs> and obviously it's like someone pouring cold ISO, you know, just, just freaked me out completely. And uh, I managed to, I realised that someone had got in from the, from the punters, as it were, Mm. Uh, managed to run up on stage, grab one of the microphones while they were still setting up for the next band, and got put this message out. Uh, and then about fifteen minutes later, this young girl came up to the, where I was sort of still pulling my hair out by the, so, and she said, "Oh, I think I I saw a uh, someone put a guitar case under in his tent." Uh, so. <laughs> And obviously everyone and all the security and everyone, we all rushed up and sort of pounced on this guy. And sure enough, there was a, there was a flying V under his um, under his sleeping bag. Good lord! Uh, much to my relief, uh, because it was a very rare one, as you can imagine. Yeah, of course. And uh, but and that was it. So they wanted to do all sorts to him. So I just said, look, 
just take him to the exit and don't let him back in. That was, it, really. <laughs> <laughs> that was a little story, outside story. Really. No, fabulous, fabulous. It's these kind of stories that really make a meal. I, I have to say, it's great, great to hear these sort of anecdotes. Now, you mentioned mm. earlier that the festivals back then were not well run, and I think we'll all agree. I mean, sometimes when we look at the playbacks or the DVDs of some of these shows, you know, from the oh. early seventies or late sixties, you kind of think, yeah. how can people put up with this? But of course, yeah. it's a different audience, isn't it? I mean, today, I think oh, the audience yeah. would be unforgiving. But back oh, then, right. you know, back then yeah. people kind of just, you know, they right. accepted the long gaps and the microphones that used uh, to to go crazy yeah. because they over, you know, overplayed yeah. it. It was still exciting to them. Yeah. All they had was their Dan Set radio in their, uh, you know, mm. Dan Set record player mm. in their bedroom. That's it. Uh, and that was it. And very, there was little money about as well. Well, yeah. you can see when you look at some of the fifth, like something like two shillings and sixpence to get into a venue, which equates to about. 5p or 10p or something or other yeah you know it, it's unbelievable that because obviously all the money then was made by album sales not by live so yeah, exactly. it's completely done a, a, a 180 isn't it yeah absolutely yeah. now the business model has completely changed you're absolutely yeah. right yeah um, but um yeah so um that when you look at even look at those look at woodstock you know it was a complete calamity really all those because it was very new you know, mm. We did shows down in the southern states, in, um, down in uh, Mississippi, we did an open air festival um, with uh, bands that were on, they were like Wet Willie Band and Marshall Tucker uh, and those sort of guys. So it was a real down home um, thing and uh, gig. And it, it, actually, it was fantastic because it was so crazy. It was just uh, unbelievable. and. Uh, you wondered how it actually completed, but that, that they were—that's the way they were. Festivals then they were very, very sort of shooting from the hip type of thing. Absolutely. Well, we'll 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 come back to this theme later with regards to Elton at Wembley '75 because there's a story there I want to talk about as well. But before we do that, right. Before we do all of that, I think it's time for a uh, a quick sweeper. Okay. There is. That's a rocket going off. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, just a little bit more about. Um, about this very long 13-minute song. So can you remind us what was the name of the song that was was played? Uh, Shine Boy. Shine Boy, that was it, yeah. Um, yeah. Was it Caleb himself who, because he seemed to be running the show to some degree with, with Hookfoot. I mean, oh, did he yeah. choose the song? or did, and, and, he, he wrote the song. Yeah, and, um, and he but, chose it for the, for the gig. Um, yeah, but that was, uh, that was, it was the obvious thing to do because mm. obviously we were trying to sort of think on our feet. Uh, because I was annoyed with with the promoters not wanting us to, they didn't even want us to, or the band to do us anything. You know, just wanted us to back Al Cooper. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was um, it. Was just a a nice little dig in the eye for them, really. So, yeah, of course. But it's a fantastic song. I can't remember whether it's on. Um, it might be on the Headlines album. We're going to all look at that there. in a minute. We're all going to look, yeah. go online in a minute or go to Spotify yeah. and see if we can find it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Um, so, yeah, so I wanted to turn now, if I may, to um, to Wembley 75. I understand that you were connected with that as well. Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, yeah, only briefly because of the fact that, um, obviously, uh, Roger, um, it sort of goes back before there, but at that particular time, when Roger and Caleb had then uh, joined, rejoined the Elton John band, um, and uh, the I went actually uh, to the rehearsals, which were at Bray Studios. Yep. 
in um, near, near Windsor, up, yeah. up that way, yeah. And um, I remember because at that time I I actually wasn't working for them because uh, my I had a little of a tate tate with John Reed and we ended up parting company uh, because of for whatever reason mm. while we were out at the Caribou doing the Captain Fantastic album. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but anyway, so but Rogers still wanted me to be you know his uh, you know roadie or tech as they call them now. Yeah. Um, and uh, so anyway, he said, "Look, come up to the, come up to the uh, the rehearsals." And I remember walking in to the. It's a big film set, you know what those places were like. Mm. And the whole band was set up with with Ray and um, uh, Trevor Newton Howard and obviously Kenny and Passarelli and the whole thing. But they were right in the middle of doing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, mm. and. Well, to be honest with you, even to this day, I have never, ever heard anything like it in terms of the whole spectrum of sound and the, it just put the hairs right up on the back of your neck. Mm. Uh, fantastic. And um, it, it, even to me, because that was the pinnacle really of, for me personally, that was the pinnacle of Elton's, Elton's musical career recording at caribou yeah uh, yeah and and also the fact of the band having the, mm. the you know from the rock of the westies band and yeah the, the caribou band uh yeah so it was uh it was fantastic that uh so following that in 75 at wembley um of course elton goes on stage and he does something that a lot of people were very nervous about <laughs> that is he decided to introduce a new album and it's kind of comes 360 degrees with what we were talking about earlier you remember you mentioned that um festivals back then were based upon um hang on somebody's cockroach has gone off (laughs) sounds like somebody's (laughs) cockroach has gone off is that your phone something is making a lot of noise in the background oh yeah i'm sorry i've yeah it's my because i put it on silent oh i see oh it's your it's your mobile phone somebody's trying to call you Right. Okay. Yeah, it's actually. Uh, <laughs> Do you know it's what? All going on. I'm getting used to this. You know, when Kiki D did her uh, her uh, turn on this show, um, her mobile went off as well. So it, it don't worry. This is now it's an occupational hazard. You're busy people. I know that. I know that. Okay. Yeah, um, she's a, she's a <laughs> so lovely girl. She yeah. is indeed. She is, and she was obviously as uh, well all our guests, but she was very fun to uh, to uh, interview as well. I have to say, great fun, great fun indeed. Uh, I was doing her out front sound one time. I was a front sound engineer mm-hmm. on uh, on a British tour, and uh, just another little story because they pop up in my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, was at, there we were at Guildford Civic Hall, and uh, they had the band came on and I was there ready and we were just fired up the first song and then each side of me, one side of me sits Gus Dudgeon and the other side of me sits Elton. <laughs> so right. you can you can no pressure, you know, I was just <laughs> it was unbelievable. And, and at the end of it they they sort of give me the old thumbs up and everything for the sound and whatever. But that was just a that with Kiki was phenomenal. Mm, mm. Yeah. So back so, in 75 at Wembley, Elton goes out and he plays the entirety of his new album, Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. Exactly. Right. Well, this is, I mean, this is bold to say the least. Um, uh, I know we've talked about festivals are there to promote um, sales of albums, but this is, this is taking the biscuit, isn't it? 
Oh right. I mean, there were obviously the other, the other on the band, the the the, uh, the Eagles, and then the Beach Boys. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, and obviously the Beach Boys just came on and played all their hits, and of just uh, it it was not a, it wasn't the wisest move to be honest with you. That, um, but again, you know, give him his due. At least he sort of that's what he wanted to do. He he, yeah. he felt felt that he. Because a lot of musicians, I mean, as you you know very well, that they play the same song over and over every night for months mm. and you know years on end sometimes, and obviously he'd just written this this body of work, which was I thought was fantastic, one of his best um, albums, mm. and uh, he he just felt that he wanted to go out there and let everyone hear it. He didn't think that they wouldn't, you know, they go, oh, hang on a minute, what's this? Because you know, <laughs> at the end of the songs, it was almost silent. Well, I was going to ask you, what was the reaction? You were there, it, so what, what yeah. were you, usually you see a lot of familiarity and a lot of buzz from the audience. What, what were they like when they were listening? I'm sure they were listening saying, this is new. Well, but, it was almost but, like they were talking, you could almost hear the audience talking to themselves. It was that bad, if you know what I mean. Right, right. The atmosphere. Uh, I was just stood off to one side of the stage, mm. and uh, I looked out, and there was just it was it was a very nonplussed. It didn't go down well at all. Really. Now, so, uh, now Elton's usually very good at judging audiences, and it's one of the reasons why he survived all these many years in the showbiz. In the showbiz, correct. but I mean, yeah. what was what was his? Re I mean, he must have seen people talking, looking at each other, in some disbelief, a few disappointed faces. Um, at least at the front rows, you might not have seen all the way back to the back of Wembley Stadium. But what was um, what was he like afterwards when he came off stage? Did he turn oh, around to anyone? Did he remark? I didn't, I, I didn't see any of that. I, I, you always tend to, to be honest with you, kept away from the sort of after the after sort of party or the after sort of gig thing. Yeah. Because generally, most most musicians want to just sit down and and sort of let the sweat drain off of them and just reflect on what they've just done you know yeah. so they, it's like a quiet time a lot of times uh, can't say that for the for hook foot but <laughs> generally most <laughs> bands uh, we did uh, we did some crazy stuff that band and but they the thing was that it was caleb's band mm. it, he was hook foot um and uh, obviously the name came from when they were trying to think of the name they were originally called the loot mm. Um, when and so when they uh, obviously ch had this change around and brought Ian into the band, they wanted to change the name of the band. So uh, they came up and Roger, because of the way he used to play, and obviously then the kit, his old Ludwig kit, just was on a piece of carpet if you were lucky, and the stuff always used to ride away from him, the bass drum and the and the hi hat. So whenever he, when he was playing, he was always hooking his foot around the hi hat stand. Mm. To hook it back up to into place, and uh, that's basically uh, where the hook foot came from. And how yeah. how was the chemistry between members of the band, in particular Roger and Caleb? Oh, it was just phenomenal. Yeah. They, they they were just it was like they only had, I mean Caleb or Ian. It was obviously or both of them. They would play or give give out a play an acoustic sort of version of whatever the song was. And then Rogers, I'm never. He never used to. He always instantly seemed to get it, get it. Mm. And they would start playing the track, and then within a couple of tracks, I mean, uh, you know, because you remember it was sort of. I think it was four track originally when their first mm -hmm. album was eight eight track. 
Um, so there was a lot, there wasn't much room for, you had to get things done properly, you know, for when it came to record and you couldn't keep that like they do now, go on forever and a day. Yeah. Um, and so that was, um, that was a, their, if you like, their education. And that's why they were so good. That's why they were so sought after, Roger especially and Caleb, in the session world. Yeah. Be- because they would just go in and um, they get play the whatever the the uh, demo was in in the uh, in the, the fold back of the studio, you know, the the control room, and then next thing they'd walk out and do it. You know, <laughs> it comes to the end of the track, and the engineer go, "That's good." You know, the producer would say, "Yeah, that's it." Now, I remember about 20 years ago, I interviewed Roger Pope and uh, he, one wonderful story he uh, recounted from his very versatile career is that he he, he would come in to record for, for, for the Alton John Band and uh, apparently at that time he was also doing some extra work. You know, he had a day job, basically, and yeah. he did a bit of building work. He did. Yeah, well, and, uh, yeah. And he, uh, yeah. Go on. Sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say that, uh, and that stemmed back from... Uh, his time with the Trogs. Yes. Yeah. Uh, because obviously Reg was a bricklayer by trade, Reg Presley. Yes. And um, obviously uh, I think because uh, uh, Roger spent time as a roadie for them um, for a, per- a period of time and also used to play drums on stuff where uh, if Ronnie couldn't get a particular thing, he would help, you know, just he would help out and sort of, they would get the stuff done. There's that famous Trogs tape that I'm sure you've probably heard. Uh, uh, it went around the world uh, about when they were in the studio, the Trogs, and it was just uh, so sorry. Yes, yeah, so I sort of got off track slightly, but the, the that was when obviously Roger and I, even at the in the very early days, we were getting paid from uh, DJM. We were getting thirty pounds a week. Mm. Uh, yeah. And so, obviously, uh, to supplement it, we even used to go. There was a a, a lady that had a farm and with all um, pheasants and what have you. And when it came round to the time of year for them to be uh, slaughtered for the you know for Christmas or whatever, we used to go in there and pluck the pheasants. Right. That right. was a job, and we used to get. I used to get two and sixpence a bird. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> and it was both Roger and I. That was because he, you know, he was the same. Yeah, he was, he was married, you know, and had a house to support and everything else. So mm-hmm. he, you know, he was financially a lot more under pressure than 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 probably all of us really. Because even at that time, Caleb wasn't married uh, uh, to Pat. And mm-hmm. uh, then there's a, the picture. I've got a picture actually of at the wedding where there's there's Caleb and Pat, and at the back there's there's all the band and myself and Elton and and some of the the uh, the old engineers from DJM etc. Yeah, Jeff Titmus and all that. Yeah. Yeah. How how long ago did you? When was it you joined uh, Dick James Music? By the way, Dick James yeah. was um, well because originally. We they were signed to Chess Records, Hookfoot, mm. uh, and um, that that story was uh, it's something else. It was basically the the album because ten years after we're also with with Chess at the time, and anyway, so uh, Marshall Chess and his son and all entourage came over uh, to have a meeting with they the album had been sent out to them. 
which mm-hmm. actually came, it's the one now called Piece of Pie. We, uh, we Caleb and I named it because it never even got released and it got left in the, in, on the shelf for, for about 30 odd years or whatever. Good Lord. <clears throat> and, um, so anyway, we, we we all went up there, you know, they were all excited about, you know, signing up with Chess and, and the whole sort of thing of what the future was going to hold for the band. And um, it was in Bar- an office up in Barclay Square somewhere. So it was very, it was all very sort of uh, heady. Uh, you know, we sort of went up there and it was, ran up these stairs and Caleb was in the front and everyone was shaking hands. and. Yeah. Met Marshall and all the rest of them, and uh, so after a few sort of intros, a few sort of glasses, they said, "Right, but we've um, we've done a few uh, editorials to the album," uh, and, and um, which I looked over at Caleb and saw his face change mm-hmm. straight away, and uh, so oh blimey, what's this? Um, Bearing in mind, I mean, I was very new to all this. I didn't understand really what they were on about. It just, all I know that I, by that time, I knew Caleb quite well and I knew when he wasn't very happy, I could see it a mile off. And so anyway, they proceeded to play the, play the album and um, it was about a third of the way through and Caleb stood up and said, turn it off. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so we're all, we're, the whole room went dead quiet and everything else. Uh, basically, what happened was that when they took it back to the States, they actually got another harmonica player and replaced Ian's harmonica right. on, on one track. And then they even took some of Caleb's guitar out and put some other stuff in. They did this whole sort of butchery job on the album. Yeah, it's not, it's not an edit. It's a, it's a butchery. It, was a, it yeah. was a complete butchery, yeah. And because... Well, then it all just went dead and Caleb said, yeah, I've heard enough. And uh, he said, right, thanks very much, Chess, but no thanks. And uh, we all stood up and walked out. You know, and, and- <laughs> I was going to say, it's something that Elton's never had to put up with. He's never gone into a, a place where they've fooled around with his uh, final recording and then said, right, we're going to do it like this. He's never well, had, no. to, had to do all that. But what Not a situation for Caleb to be put into. So what happened after that? Oh. So so they basically uh, so, stood up well, and left. But, yeah, we all went down and jumped back in the van and uh, then uh, drove back round to uh, to New Oxford Street where DJM was because mm-hmm. Caleb obviously worked there. He was he had the run of the place really because of his association with Dick mm-hmm. and um, where he was uh, he was became the studio manager. Um, and, uh, so it was, it was really sort of, they'd had an offer from, um, um, oh God, it was the guy that had the thing out in the Caribbean, uh, Rich, Richie, oh God, it'll come back to me in a bit, sorry. But, um, it was, a uh, um, another uh, record label that were right exact match for them. Um, but in the process of that being talked about, um, they had a chat with Steve Brown mm-hmm. um, at DJM and uh, basically said, Steve said, well, why, why you've got everything here. Why do you want to go out and work, you know, and record yeah. for, and, and so basically that's how it came about. So Hookfoot then signed for DJM. 
And because uh, I think at that time that even even Elton didn't have a he didn't have a deal, because mm. he was even wrote in that book of his, didn't he? He put a book out or mm-hmm. something out. He said it, it said on there even even Hookfoot's got a, <laughs> a record deal or something. He was <laughs> you know obviously feeling that because it, he 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 struggled at first. Elton, yeah, yeah, of course. You, you yeah. know he was uh, it, like like everyone. It was a mm. uh, it was a real sort of. Uh, uh, unbelievable if you and the, you know the chances of getting signed up was pretty rare even then yeah but it's, <coughs> it's it's good in a way it's good to go through setbacks because it makes you stronger it makes Correct. you a survivor it makes you also learn from your mistakes and i think that's the important thing as long as you're learning from what happened you won't make that same mistake twice and and you, you wise up so i think that's what's in anyway many ways those early points of trepidation in Elton's career actually are what made him, you know, a 55-year strong career. And it's, uh, oh, it's sure. remarkable. Now he's retiring, but he's, um, you know, he's still... Yeah, I think he's, I think he's done his... Uh, <laughs> he's done his bit, I think, for... He certainly has. Uh, and he doesn't... I don't think he can... I can't think of anything else he could do, to be honest with you. And it's remarkable. Yeah. He's got fans of all ages and all mm. types right mm. around the world it's incredible i mean that's that's a real hallmark of a of an artist you know but yeah. um but uh, we're, we're talking there about um about the, the move to djm and and you you posed a, a, a question that steve brown asked and, and i think it's a really good question why do you want to go somewhere else when it's all here when steve said that to caleb what did caleb say because it sounds to me like a like a pretty obvious destination point for for the band no yeah, I mean, um, I wasn't sort of. This is what I got. The sort of this was afterwards. I actually, I wasn't in the room when they nice. finally agreed. Mm. Um, but obviously, after coming out, and then we all went into the uh, control room of the studio and sat down and and smoked a joint or whatever, you know. And uh, generally, sort of, it all you know all said right. This is what's going to happen. This you know, it's definitely. Uh, the best thing and the thing was we had unlimited or the band had unlimited studio time because of that yeah. so at dicks so um that was a, a it was a bonus in certain ways but i think in retrospect it probably wasn't such a good idea because it again it, it took the pressure off yeah, yeah. they weren't under pressure of time or money true uh, so um um but having said that I mean, some of some of the stuff that they did was just outrageous. I think, especially in the circumstances. Yeah, yeah. But um, now, how long would they normally spend on uh, cutting an album? You know, how long would they take to record it? Were they perfectionists? Was was Caleb a real perfectionist? Um, no, it was it was just feel. Hmm. They were. It wasn't. It wasn't about the notation or you know the the pips and squeaks or anything. It was. It was about if it felt right. You know, the the mistakes make it sound right as well. Right. You know, it's that sort of thing. So, um, but he, yeah, he was very, very sort of uh, the, the the problem. Well, the problem slightly was the fact that Caleb was a maestro. He is a maestro. Um, he's a, a guitar genius in my eyes, but I was slightly biased. But then, having said that, uh, I believe Eric Clapton made a comment about it at some stage or another. Right. Um, and so, but the rest of the band was so good. Ian was one of the best rhythm guitar players for tightness, and that's what, above everything, was the tightness of the of mm. the of the the whole band. Um, and the, it was just they they sort of knew, and it it didn't take long. They used to, I mean, the, the albums were done in a couple of weeks. Right. You know, 
Nice and, um, nice and quick then. Nice and quick. Yeah, there was there was no messing around. You know, they just and once once it once it was done, we were off then, and that they were either doing sessions or we were off doing another tour, going off to Italy or wherever, um, uh, or back to America again. So it was a it was a a complete revolving door thing. You know, mm. just in and out, in and out. Of, um, and for me, it was a killer because. Dick Jane's music was up on above a Midland bank on in New Oxford Street, mm-hmm. and the only way to get up there was this little elevator that you could only took one person sort of thing. <laughs> so I used to have to carry everything up this flight of of stairs, you know, like a three story length of stairs. Yeah, um, you, you mean an elevator that was actually designed to take plates for a restaurant? Yeah. It, I well, I, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah, because I don't know. I think actually it tur- it got turned into a hair salon or something. One of these. One of these sort of uh, fancy dancy hairdressers took it, took the building over. Right after Dick James moved out. Mm. But, okay, uh, but interesting what you're saying about the sort of gritty style of the the band, and and you said two weeks to record. Does that that doesn't include the songwriting, presumably? That was just sitting in there getting the tunes right. Yeah, the the songwriting mainly was done on the road. It's yeah. like uh, one one song particularly that Ian wrote was riding on a thunderstorm when we were in the middle of a thunderstorm in an aeroplane flying mm. across a, a, some part of America, and we all thought it had our number on it. It was that rough. Gosh. Uh, and uh, so much so that my drink came out. I had a drink. I remember distinctly this glass, and the drink actually came out of the glass oh, vertically, oh, and I was trying to catch it or stop it from <laughs> from drowning me. And Ian sat next to me, and uh, he was scribbling away, and that he was, you know, even then, there, he was. He was terrified. Writing, his way out of it was to write and so uh, that's how Riding on a Thunderstorm was uh, came about so a lot of it was a lot of the songs were as most bands were then it was through experience that the, the songs developed uh, lyrically etc right um, just uh, as, as far as the musicality they just I don't know they were just they just had this thing and all of a sudden the song sounded like they'd been playing it forever Mm, mm. It, it was just so uh it was so uh um good to be involved in in terms especially for me because not being a musician um but obviously i had all, i was all the sort of i was a fixer i could get things done if we couldn't get it i'd always you know they'd never i don't think in all the years we missed one we missed one gig and that was only because they didn't want to do it right fair do Listen, <laughs> listen to another track from Hookfoot. Here we go. See, see if you remember this one as well. You and your okay. feedback, son. All right, then. Okay? Yeah? All right. That's a little bit of Hookfoot there and a song called Movies. I bet that brings back a lot of memories for you as well. Our special guest here today is Phil Greenfield. Yeah, it certainly does, George. That um, the track was uh, written by Ian, and it was um, he actually penned it while we were at home one period, and we come from a town called Gosport in Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one particular, this one particular time. Um, where he'd been out, he, he loves walk. Ian used to walk for miles. He was one of those sort of guys who just had to, if everyone had air, air his head, he'd just go and walk. And um, his girlfriend at the time, Gig, Gig Kingswell, her name was, fantastic female. Um, 
they uh, they were down walking down this road past this um, cemetery um, and it basically he was talking about his grandparents that were buried in there mm. and um, they were just basically walking along and uh, he he sort of penned that song about that about the whole sort of experience of uh, what he went through and uh, it was uh, yeah that's how it was so it was quite a very personal song yes indeed for, for, for Ian and uh, um, Gig God bless her she's still around she's fighting fit somewhere um, but she was uh, she was the one that gave me my nickname that has now stuck with me for the last 50 53 years or whatever <laughs> yeah <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that yeah, yeah go on this is where we, we you, you're bringing it nice I like the way you segue this into the into the interview so tell us what is your nickname and why uh, primarily it's, it's flop but spelt p-h-l-o-p as my name is phil mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was Philop, Flop, and that's how it came. And it was Gig that gave me the name, and it was due to the fact that back then I was the chief cook and bottle washer, so loading <laughs> the gear in, looking after them, making sure they didn't get themselves into any problems, doing the out-front sound, collecting the money, you name it. it was, that was what a, a roadie did then. That was a road manager's job, was basically everything on the road. And obviously, because it was a very, they had no, you know, there wasn't a lot of money uh, coming in terms of the budget from DJM. So uh, uh, it was just yours truly, basically. That and when we first went off to America um, in nineteen seventy or whatever it was, um, that was how it went. And then while we were out there, we met up with a couple of guys down in the south, and one of them was Steve Dabs. Who uh, and the other guy, Steve, stayed on with us, and we brought him back to Europe uh, to carry on working with us. But he ended up, you know, the very very lights company out in San Francisco. Oh yeah, the, the Genesis. Yeah. Well, he became, I think he became. It was one of the major, like a CEO of that or something. Mm. Steve Dabs, uh, another fantastic Southerner, came from Mississippi somewhere. Uh, and Bob, that was it. The other guy, Bob, used to be able to play the spoons, you know, like the old southern spoons. Right. And it, that was like a little party piece, you know, whenever we got together and used to go out in the woods and just sort of... Uh, did did know, he do the Emery like, board as well? Uh, uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I don't know what board he did, but it was... Uh, no, it was uh, he went off and worked in the end. He went to work for... Um, one of the other big southern bands, uh, um, and who was it? <laughs> I know it's torture for you doing a live it, it, interview like this and saying, "Right, no, uh, what was the name again? What was the name?" It'll come back. You know, there's probably people listening to this show right now screaming back, you know, like they're on a quiz show. He knows the answer. He knows it. Just open your mouth, say it. I <laughs> know, <laughs> uh, um, but yeah. So, uh, but that was so. That was where it split off, and he went to work for them and they were quite they became quite a big band this band that i can't remember um (laughs) and then so steve steve came over with us and then uh toured with us uh all the way through pretty much till the uh the the, from when the band finally uh split up 
Right. Well, uh, look, don't, don't, look, don't um, kill yourself trying to remember the name of the band. It's probably one of these things that after the show you will remember. So you can just drop me an email yeah. and we can mention it in the little uh, write-up for this show on, online. How's that? That's probably the best I will, thing. yeah. Yeah. You know yeah. our email address, radio at eltonjohn.world. No worries. Yeah. No worries. Well, look, it's a fantastic story, that. Um, so, so you anyway, so you became known as Flop. And did it, it, was it an instant take? Did everyone start calling you that from there on? For, yeah. For some reason, I don't know. It just, it just stuck. Everyone, everyone sort of, uh, it's catchy, it just, isn't I suppose it? it was so fitting, really. But. Well, come on, you, you weren't a disaster because for those who, who, who don't know their English brilliantly, I mean, flop obviously means something that didn't succeed, right? It's yeah, a film exactly. that's a flop is a film that didn't do well at the box office. It, it, exactly, yeah. So it was, um, it was just purely my physical, um, demeanor when I was walking around. I was generally sort of round shoulders, sort of worn out, you know, sort of knackered, if you like, <laughs> just sort of, and that I would just basically used to flop around. And she said, you, you're, you're just like a flop or something, she said, and that was it. And because everyone was in the room when she said it, yeah. especially Caleb, and Caleb used to, pick up on things so quickly um and that's it just basically stuck yeah uh, okay um, it was say it was it was then back then you, you were a roadie mm. Mm. you were the role of the roadie you know you were you were that's what, what you were you weren't a tech or anything like that it doesn't matter how many skills you had you just yeah. were the road manager yeah but you also worked on sound this is the interesting thing you didn't just work on what i call logistics yeah, no, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's... I did, I did the, the out front sound for all the early, yeah, all the way through Hookfoot's sort of period, yeah, uh, and say so then that, that rolled on, and I did a Kiki D tour of the UK where I was the out front sound because Jeff, Jeff Titmus, who was her sound engineer at the time, had they'd been in America on that American tour where they supported mm. Elton, mm. and um, Jeff decided to stay in New York for whatever reason. And so when they came back, this tour was fairly close up. So I got a phone call from Stuart Epps, mm-hmm. who, uh, I don't know whether we you know him very know well about Stu. Yeah. Yes. And, and so Stu rang me and said, you know, what are you doing? You know, sort of thing. That was, he was always a bit like that. I said, oh yeah, I'll just sit there, you know, just sort of. And um, he, uh, he said, could you do the, the sound for Kiki on this tour? And so I said, yeah, all right. Cause I, I know, Excuse me. I knew Roger was on it, and mm. um, and even Ian did a bit of the tour as well. Yep. And so it was, uh, uh, and it was a great tour, actually, great little uh, setup. Uh, um, which uh, and the same mm. thing went from there. You know, after that, I then went. Uh, the guy driving the truck was a guy called Roger Searle, who mm. was the lighting LD for the Who. Oh right, and. Yeah. The who the who had just uh, bought the the um, the the uh, lease to Shepperton Studios, right? And they set up their their whole company, their ML executives, mm. uh, where they did from recording to rehearsing trucks, buses, the whole nine yards. And so Roger came out, and the who had just done the they just done the um, the tour of the football grounds. Mm-hmm. Um, it was then, whenever that was, 75 or 6 or something. Uh, and, yeah, so after that, that was when I, I somehow or another bumped into Roger after that tour because it was just a one-off for me. It didn't, I didn't, it didn't count because actually Kiki, she was doing that Blood Brothers afterwards. Mm-hmm. 
And she then, I think she stopped. She didn't go on the road for a long time after that. She just did the theatre thing yeah. with uh, Russell. What's his name? Ken Russell or someone? Ken Russell, yeah. Blood, Blood, Blood Brothers. Mm-hmm. Great show, mind you. Fantastic. Um, yeah, so, uh, and then, so I ended up working for the Who's outfit for about eight years after that. Wow. Eight or ten years. So, uh now, um, when just going back to to Wembley '75, when when you were sort of brought in for that, um, uh, uh, I think at Caleb's request, right? I think you said, um, what uh, what was your role there? What were you doing? Uh, was it just road manager, or were you doing uh, any, anything else behind the scenes? Well, to be honest with you, I think it was more more than anything. It was sort of uh, moral support, <laughs> if you know what I mean. I think it was just that because um, Caleb along. That, that 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 whole sort of generation, uh, including Elton especially, was very loyal. Mm. They didn't like um, Elton's original road uh, road manager, Bob Stacey. Yeah, uh, yeah. he was a fantastic guy. He did the, the he did all right from the the beginning part of of the Elton John sort of uh, story, if you like. Yeah. Um, and he. When he went to, when they were out in America, and when then Hookfoot went out to support Elton, uh, and it was Bob really that that basically helped me. We together helped to figure out how you get stuff from A to B over there, you know, in aeroplanes and the whole sort of thing of it. Sort mm. of, uh, so um, he was he was very Super instrumental in, yeah. my, in, in my sort of my sort of beginnings, if you like. Mm. Uh, Lovely, another lovely guy, and Elton was very, very loyal to him. Even he had a bad accident, mm. uh, one of the bloody W bins, which were basically the big old base bins uh, that like Claire Brothers and those people used to use. Mm-hmm. And I think he had one fall on him once and Good done grief. something bad because health and safety, you know, wasn't the, wasn't what it is uh, now. Yeah, <laughs> but in, in all in all ways, so it was. Uh, there was there's good and bad luck like, with everything, but that was that was really how. And he Elton even sort of brought Bob back uh, and sort of gave him a Percy job, you know, just floating around backstage. Basically, mm-hmm. that was the last time I saw him, and that was a few years ago when Elton was doing the the um, the uh, arena tours over here. He's yeah. doing the football stadiums. That's right. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. yeah that one there. That was because uh, I met up with Gus and. Um, and mm. uh, obviously uh, Clive Franks, yep. who was Elton's out front. Um, Clive used to ring me whenever he'd get in and bring, we'd have a get-together, you know, mm. and with Gus and everyone. So, because, uh, um, and then uh, that, that those sort of things used to come up every now and again, which, which was great because it was a sort of, another little sort of bullet point in my memory that I can sort of, just about remember. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you mentioned Clive. He, of course, now living in New Zealand as he does. Um, but uh, he was yeah. over in he was over in uh, the UK last summer, actually. Um, yeah, he did. We all met up. Uh, you you up were there as Cook- well. Ah. Yeah, up in Cookham. Cookham, that's right. We, we, we always meet where that's where um, Stuart lives. Stuart. Epps. That's it. Yeah. And uh, so obviously, and that was obviously from the mill, mm. which was the recording studio where Single Man was done and all that. Um, they it's our sort of if you like whenever Clive he would say I'm coming over or whatever so we'd end up everyone would sort of drop as much as you could everything and shuffle a bit of time to go and have a, a couple of days together oh, and some lovely. of the girls from the office of DJM uh, mm-hmm. Sue Cook mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Elaine um, 
and a few of the others uh, we all sort of end up we used to congregate and uh, like say last summer we did and uh, so fantastic so how many how many of you were there because when i saw the pictures that Stu shared um uh, he was he was it was just him and his his partner his wife and 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 Julia. clive yeah and 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 clive and his wife and 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 the Dying. four of them were, were over at cliveden you know the lovely Home that's it. Just yeah. up, up on the Thames. Beautiful place. Yeah. And, they, and they just took some photos there. I, I didn't realise that there was actually a, a bigger sort of knees up. I mean, how many of you were there who teamed up? Um, oh, I can't because there was um, also um, um, Cart was his... His name was Terry Carty, so he just became Cart. Hmm. Um, uh, uh, he was uh, <laughs> one of the young tape ops who then eventually became sort of doing engineering at Dick JM, uh, DJM at Dick's place. Um, he he was there. He's in that photo probably. If you if there's a group photo of us all, mm. um, that was out of the back of one of the pubs in Cookham, right. which was sort of had a garden and it was lovely sort of weather. I know the, the pub as well. I know exactly where that is. <coughs> I know exactly yes. where it is. Yeah, the Crown or the George or one of that. <laughs> so, um, so tell us a bit about because um, uh, you moved on later to to working with other bands. I mean, you mentioned the Who, but obviously you also worked, I think, with uh, Supertramp. Am I right? Yeah, I did a twelve week tour with them. All all the stadiums across Europe we played. Awesome. Um, and uh, that was a, another little story. With that was one of the support acts on the tour was uh, Joe Cocker. Oh. And because Joe at that particular time was in a bit of a low ebb of his his sort of uh, his sort of career, if you like, um, so he uh, they got him on to support uh, mm. on the tour, and we went all through you. And he was so he was such on a, running on such a shoestring uh, that um, and I just I just love the guy. He was just to me just mm. was everything. Yeah. in terms of that sort of period and so i used to do the follow spot on him and because follow spot operators you know get paid and all that sort of stuff well i did it and i did, didn't i didn't want to be paid i just said i want he, he deserves at least one follow spot you know? <laughs> <laughs> it was crazy he was doing all his all his um you know classic songs um and yeah. people were but it was just at that time he wasn't selling records and so that, that that was um but that was off of that tour but that they that band fantastic the super tramp mm. those guys roger and and all the guys from uh, the band they were they were a very inclusive type of band they were old school if if you went out somewhere they went out for an evening for a meal everyone went mm, mm. down to the whoever was washing up the dishes in the you know <laughs> or whatever it was it, it, they always included everyone at the end of the tour you got a little tour bonus which was always you know well received mm. and they they give you like a little gift i've still got mine it's an alarm clock i don't know what they were trying to tell me but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah so uh, so that was that was a great tour i did toured with diana ross and the clash Awesome. Um, uh, Average White Band. Yeah. Uh, Average White Band was a fantastic band, as yep. you know. Pick up the pieces. And yeah. I got to uh, mm. I got to become real friends. I was always I always sort of um, ended up with the drummers, just because obviously that I sort of always gravitated to the drummers. Right. And uh, Steve Ferroni, 
mm-hmm. who was drumming for them at the time, who then went on with Tom Petty for about 20 years, didn't he, mm-hmm. till his unfortunate death. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that was a fantastic sort of uh, period as well, really, where and a lot, and I toured with uh, Eric Clapton, did all the Eastern Bloc with him. And, uh, Crikey. Um, who else? We've, it's only part of the production team, driving trucks mainly, but then operating lights and, and just sort of being part of the gang. And uh, same thing with, uh, with Eric. It was Whenever there, anything went on, everyone was included in it. Mm. Um, so it, they made you feel like you were were sort of, if you like, sort of uh, appreciated. Mm. I mean, a lot of the, the, the later tours that I sort of, before I finally knocked it on the head, was it came, I actually, just to sort of intercede, but we were doing that Supertramp tour and we were doing big, like 120,000 people in the Dax Arena in the south of France and places like that. And just after the start of the tour, we were all at the backstage area and I saw these, I think there were two or three of these guys come walking up t- towards the, the back, you know, the dressing, dressing area, dressing, stage dressing area. And uh, they were accountants with suitcase, mm-hmm. with sort of briefcases. And um, that, was, that was when I said then, I said, yeah. that's the death knell. And it was, yeah. unfortunately, uh, because money just took over yeah. and it, it all became about money then. Yeah, the men who changed music, basically. Yeah, it is. It's, that's it a good was... name for a book, actually. The men who changed music. Right, really? I, you heard it here Should first. I want, my, I want my royalties. Whoever's, whoever's going to use that. Very good. <laughs> Are you going to write your autobiography out of interest? Someone, well, people always say, but to be honest, you, I'm not a writer. I don't. I can't sort of sit down and write. I suppose if I could get someone who was crazy enough to sit down and. Inter- interview you and them. yeah and sort of smoke it all out of you yeah uh, yeah because again it's like this thing with bob the the the, the guy that the old roadie that ended up going to work for it was something like the ozark daredevils or someone like it was they were a band that were sort of bubbling at the time mm. um down in the south and um right but, uh, yeah right stay right there okay just a tiny little intermission there. As we come to the last topic I wanted to, to raise, you, you mentioned it earlier, you sort of skirted around it. Um, mm. So um, I hope you don't mind me asking. Um, we were talking there about John Reed, and, and uh, you mentioned a bit of a fallout with John. I mean, you wouldn't be yeah. the first. Um, I mean, no. poor, poor Roger himself had uh, an episode like this. In fact, I was kind of alluding to it earlier when I, when I mentioned that uh, versatile as he was, you know, Roger would, would come from the building site and sometimes he would have his overalls on and st- still got mm. cement that's dried out on his clothes and he would sit down and start drumming and getting on with things. And Correct. I, and I know that that kind of annoyed John and uh, and, and so on. And, and of course, in the end, they, they, they parted ways. Um, but what was the story with you? Because from what I heard, you're, you were actually being lined up to... Um, to become Elton's like personal assistant, so basically Bob take uh, the role that later I think went to Bob Halley. Bob Halley, yeah, I got offered it by Elton and John. We were on a flight. We were it was on that early part where Hookfoot was supporting uh, on that American tour, and mm-hmm. I took a flight with them because it, it I I was over there a couple of weeks. I went out prior to the band flying out, so I I toured with the Elton. Uh, crew mm. and um, I didn't have a specific job my uh, what I was doing was just you know eyes and ears and just checking out the way things were were done you know just so that when Hookfoot came in 
it would be a smoother transition, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. <clears throat> and so, yeah, it was while well, we were on one of these flights. And funnily enough, it was another flight that involved thunderstorms. I don't know why. We were just <laughs> following around. <laughs> and uh, Elton offered me the job of it being his Percy to be his driver and mm. generally sort of. Mm -hmm. And um, at the time, obviously, I mean, Hookfoot was uh, – they were still on the up, you know. There were things. There was all sorts of things. They had a big billboard on Sunset Strip with hookfoots coming and all the rest of it. So mm. there was a lot of buzz going on. Yeah. And I just, I and obviously with my, my the whole friendship thing, and I could see that working f uh, for Elton as a Percy would take me off in a completely different direction, which I probably wouldn't have wanted to do. Mm. Uh, thing in retrospect I'm glad I didn't only because of the fact just for me personally not you know Bob done a fantastic job he was with him forever mm. but um, it was it was just not something because Bob was a, a chauffeur anyway yeah he that's how he sort of came into it um, the same as uh, uh, Gus's guy uh, God bless you, soul. He's not mm. here anymore. But um, yeah, so it was. It was really just. They just said, "Oh, you know." He said, "Oh, come and work for me," because he, you know, he'd been, and that's why I ended up getting the offer of going back and working with them after Hookfoot split. Uh, John Reed rang me up, and said, "Oh, well, Elton's just asked me to ring you. Uh, would you come and do his monitors for him?" You know, on this mm. uh, coming up, this American tour coming up. And also we were, there, first of all, going to the Caribou to do Captain Fantastic. And then after that to do the world tour, which started off in the States and do off Hawaii and go down to Australia and all the rest of it. Um, and, yeah, so I said, that, you know, when, when they asked me that, obviously, because I just lost my job, if you like, with Hookfoot, because Caleb went off to work with um, Bill Quaitman in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I took it on. I, I was initially, I thought, oh, this is great. You know, it's just really sort of fantastic. And obviously seeing where Elton was becoming sort of enormous, really. Mm. Um, and I thought, well, this is me. This is me forever. I'm not, I'm never going to leave this job because Elton and I got, I got on really well with him. You know, he was a great, he's a fantastic guy on a social level. Mm. He was then, he was very funny mm -hmm. and it, like I say he was loyal as well and uh, that's how Clive Franks he got the gig obviously being the engineer at Dick James Music and then when they first went and when they went on the road he got offered the job of being the out front sound yeah um, so the whole thing was like wrapped up really for me fantastically uh, and then we so off we went and went out to um, uh, to the caribou to, to start the set this the Captain Fantastic album, like I say. And um, it was over. It was a, I always sort of, I never really sort of, John and I, John Reed and I never really, just something for whatever reason, we didn't really sort of hit it off. Um, I didn't like the way he treated people, which was another thing that went on at the time. So um, <clears throat> basically what happened was that we got out there and then we were r right in the middle of the album and everything was going well and this, that and the other. And then John Reed, John came out to the, to the, um, and that was 
yeah, there was all sorts of things going on. The fuel shortage in America, mm -hmm. where they stopped everyone. Everyone had a maximum speed of 55 mile the, an hour. The, during the 73, 74 oil crisis. Yes, yeah, yep. that, that was it, yeah. And so there was all that going. And I don't know for whatever reason, but he just, uh, he, he said, oh, um, oh, I said, oh, that's right. I said, because uh, then, I mean, all I had was a bank account. You didn't even have credit cards then. Hmm. Um, and uh, I said, oh, I've, I've checked uh, home. I'd rung my parents, who I was living with at the time, uh, back in England. And uh, they, uh, I got them to check and the money hadn't been going into the, uh, my account. And I said, oh, I think it's a bit of an issue with the transfer of money, you know, this, that and the other. And so he proceeded to sort of tell me that it was costing him a lot of money for us to be there and that you don't need per diems, which was the, you know, the your daily allowance, if you like, when you got, when you're on, in, on tour. In, right. In so it's a little bit of an argument about money, basically. And, and, and Yeah. And it, basically it sort of blew up. It was like ridiculous. And within about five minutes, I was walking into, I carried on up the stairs, walked into the control room and uh, said, uh, sorry, lads, I'm off. And I, I mean, it, it all, and then obviously I felt bad because it's sort of the session sort of basically stopped there. Mm. Uh, and then Gus said to me, he said, oh, well, if you're going back to England, could you take these masters for Tommy back? Because <laughs> <laughs> they had just done some, done the piano work on that, you know, the... Uh, Pinball wizard, right. I guess, or whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, so Gus being Gus, you know, so yeah. he said, yeah, so I'll wrap it in, in foil and then <laughs> just stick it in your suitcase. And, uh, and cause then, because uh, then there was a big row about that, uh, that, uh, that John didn't want me to take it, didn't want me to be involved. And Gus said, you just do it, you know, because Gus was quite sort of powerful then in that respect. Right. And uh, so I, I ended up bringing it back and taking it to... Um, to uh, to the Who's place at yeah. um, I mean, show business is full of stories like this. I mean, obviously, I've heard this mm. kind of thing from lots of people and lots of managers and stuff, and and things like this happen. Um, mm. And uh, you know, I, I, from what you're saying to me there, I mean, it, what's nice though is that you you were offered a job which you turned down for, for, from Elton, and mm. then they subsequently still had you back after things uh, unravelled with Hookfoot. Yeah. You know, they, they gave you basically a second chance, which I think is fantastic. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, it goes to show that uh, Elton obviously had a lot of respect for you and, and wanted you to be around because that wouldn't have occurred, right? It wouldn't, you wouldn't have got that second chance. Yeah, for sure. I think that, um, again, because it was very personal then. Everyone, we were all mates, if you like. You know, we're all very, very close to each other when you're on the road anyway. Back then, when you, you know, obviously in the early days of any band, you're all living in each other's shoes, as it were. Mm. Um, but, um, yeah, so it, it was. And I I suppose now, you, you, the way you said that, I didn't even think about it like that. I, 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 and it's, it's true, though, that he must have obviously, he had enough feeling. I think also, I think he recognised the, the the job that I turned down really wouldn't have been any good for me because mm. he knew he knew what I was like I was very sort of not hot-headed but I was very sort of I said my mind and of whatever was going on and that's obviously how I ended up losing the job mm. <laughs> because uh, I, I, instead of keeping my mouth shut I uh, I said what I said and uh, but yeah so um, yeah so that was uh, that was how that sort of came about and 
And uh, then I came back and then I got the job, I say, with uh, when Stuart rang me to do the Kiki D tour. Mm. Uh, of course, when John found out about that, he went mad. and Because uh, even Davey, at one point, Davey asked me if I would be his guitar tech. <clears throat> this was after that. And then but that got sort of, uh, you know, for obvious reasons, got sort of... Uh, stopped still you were in, in hot demand quite clearly uh, a lot of people mm. asking for your name which is fantastic tell me mm. what happened way after that so just to conclude the show i want to ask you about sort of bringing it up to to now basically to contemporary times uh mm. did, are you still actively involved in any way in music or are you uh, happily retired what, what's your current <coughs> status um yeah no i m- musically I, i've still got obviously a couple of people that are still alive <laughs> that, are, <laughs> that I talk to, um, and my son has a—he's a um, a musician. He plays drums, guitar, and everything. And mm. uh, I built a studio down the bottom of the, our place here, so he—he's recording. He had a band out for a while called Blackfoot Circle, um, and uh, they were doing very well. Went to America, did a couple of sort of little tourette things, and but uh, unfortunately. You know, you know what it's like. It's it's not about how good you are, or it's all about who you know. And yeah. if you're in the right place at the right time, exactly. But if it fits the marketing men's uh, ideas, yeah, you can't understand how, some of the reasons why they would offload. You know, look at I mean, what was her name, the uh, Mariah Carey, and mm. all that. You know, that sort of thing where they it's they're talking about millions and millions, but they seem to be happy to sort of wash people off instead of hanging on with them now it's um, interesting but, that foot comes up a lot um you we had yeah. hook foot and then we had yeah. black foot circle was that your son's band black it, it foot was circle. yeah <laughs> yeah which is a, uh, yeah which actually as far as i know um that it had no bearing on on the hook foot name uh, it was something to do with the uh, the american indian right the black foot oh i see right so so, uh, so you didn't you didn't wrong foot hook foot yeah okay. no no <laughs> No, well, there also is a ba- there was a band called Blackfoot. Yeah, I-, I think they're still going, American band. And there was uh, what was the other one that were actually signed to DJM? It was something rather Sue. Sue. Uh, yeah, Blackfoot Sue were they called or something like that? Ooh, Sue. I'm sure there was a. It was in that whole period of time. Right, Sue in Sue as in the Red Indian word. I right? think I think it was S U E. S-U-E. Black, ah. I think Black, Blackfoot Sue. We'll have oh, to look that up. We'll have to look have that up. Have a look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they were, they were part of that sort of DJM because DJM were a bit Tim Pan Alley, really. A lot mm. of their artists mm. were was very sort of uh, show-busy mm-hmm. type. Uh, Telly Savalas and all those sort of people were signed to them. I think you had uh, Engelbert Humperdinck as well, didn't you? I, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't remember that. But <laughs> I, I know that Telly Savalas was there the day that uh, the, the whole thing busted up, which was, I can tell you that story if you like quickly. Go on. Why, um, why don't you? <laughs> it, it was, um, it was basically, it, it, we went up to, uh, we were just about to come out onto another American tour and we'd got a new promoter that really loved the band and we had about a 50-day tour set up and one thing or another and uh, he'd gone into Dick James's um, New York office and was asking for sort of press stuff and photos and blah, blah, blah and uh, they wouldn't, they were very sort of, for whatever reason, wouldn't help him 
and basically almost threw him out of the office. Uh, and so he rang Caleb. Well, Caleb just went ballistic. So we all marched off to to uh, Dick James and went up there. And uh, as we walked up these bloody great <laughs> stairs, um, and we walked in through the through the reception, Telly Savalas was stood there leaning against the reception desk. Um, and he must have wondered what the hell was going on because Caleb was like a, a typhoon. He just went in and ripped this thing off the wall that had all the stuff on there, marched into Dick's office and basically told him it was all over, that you know the band were going to split up, that were not, you know, they didn't want to do it anymore. So because what, of this, this yeah. so what year was this? this tour, what, 73 was it? Something like that? 74. 74, 74, 74. yeah. Uh, because say that it was literally we went round the court after this burst of this whole sort of thing that went on. Mm. Uh, we went down and went to the pub round the corner and basically said, and Caleb said, Well, actually, I've just been offered this work with a guy called Bill Quaitman who did a lot of session stuff in, in Chicago a month or another. And he said, I've decided to. To, to take it, you know, take the job. So um, that was pretty much it, really, because obviously without Caleb, there was no band. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, that was that, really. So it was, uh, they just sort of left, they said, <laughs> they gave me the van. We had this Mercedes sort of at the time, which was a very sort of all singing, all dancing thing. And they said, you can have the van and all the equipment in it and everything as a, like a payoff, you know, as a sort of a retirement, <laughs> whatever. At which, you know, for me, I, I, I didn't want any of it. I just wanted the band to continue. But, um, not, but today. Me, not today. That was it. That's the way life goes sometimes. But out of it all, I mean, I wouldn't have changed any of it for the world. I, th I, I think I was so lucky and blessed to have, to have sort of threw Ian through that initial sort of um, uh, start up, if you like, it just took me off on this roller coaster that went on for 20 odd years or whatever it was. I don't know. Fantastic. Went Fantastic. Yeah. Well, we like to always end on a happy note and, and I'm glad yeah. that you've got no regrets about what happened Absolutely and how it none. happened. Absolutely. None. My special guest uh, today has been Phil Flop Greenfield, uh, road manager extraordinaire. Uh, you heard there the story of Hookfoot, you heard the story of Kiki D Band, and also his work with Elton John. And I think the headline has got to be The Man Who Turned Down Elton John's Job Offer. I think that's what we're going to have to say on this one. <laughs> well, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Stay well, stay healthy, and keep and telling you. us your wonderful stories. These insights are so rare to hear and so wonderful. So thanks again for being yeah. a great sport. And you, George. Thanks very much for the invite. It's been a pleasure. Lovely. Thanks, now. Bye. And if you've got any uh, one in mind that you'd like to see on the show, uh, by all means, write to us. You know our email address, radio at eltonjohn.world. I'm going to give you a little clue. We've got something big happening also uh, in March. We are, our next episode will actually be... Uh, released on Sir Elton John's birthday. And we're lining up a super huge guest, but I'm not allowed to tell you at this point just who that is. But stay tuned, subscribe to us on your favourite podcast player app, and uh, we'll probably send a little notification, a little teaser nearer the time. 
So the next episode will be, of course, on the 25th of March. So this is me, George Matlock, signing out and hear from you next time. Thank you.